It was Maya Angelou who said, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And Oprah famously quoted her as saying, when you know better, do better. You're going to know some things after this podcast, and then you can do better. Stay tuned to learn more. So the big question is, how do women over 40 like us keep weight off, have great energy, balance our hormones and our moods, feel sexy and confident, and master midlife? If you're like most of us, you're not getting the answers you need and remain confused and pretty hopeless to ever feel like yourself again. As an OBGYN, I had to discover for myself the truth about what creates a rock-solid metabolism, lasting weight loss, and supercharged energy after 40 in order to lose 100 pounds and fix my fatigue. Now, I'm on a mission. This podcast is designed to share the natural tools you need for impactful results and to give you clarity on the answers to your midlife metabolism challenges. Join me for tangible natural strategies to crush the hormone imbalances you're facing and help you get unstuck from the sidelines of life. My name is Dr. Kieran Dunstan. Welcome to the Hormone Prescription Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Hormone Prescription with Dr. Kieran. Thank you so much for joining me today. We have a lovely guest you're going to love. I know I say that about all my guests because I love them all, literally. They're just amazing people who are passionate and brilliant. And Margaret is no exception. And she does so much work to help women. She has a powerful story as to why she's so passionate about autoimmune disease and the nutritional component and reversing it. So you'll definitely want to hear that. She is going to give you a perspective that you probably haven't had yet. And we, we really get into some detailed things. So I definitely encourage you to be in a place where you can take notes because you're going to want to do that. She, we're, she's going to share with you why we are essentially complicated donuts. I know right now you're going, what? But she's going to talk to you about that. If you've been wondering, well, do I really have to be gluten-free and do I need to do it 100%? She's going to uncover that for you and unpack that. So she's going to answer a lot of questions that you've got about your health. She's brilliant. She also trains practitioners. She's going to talk to you about that. She's got some super fun gifts for you. So let me tell you a little bit about her and then we'll get started. Margaret Floyd Berry is a writer and real food advocate who's been on the pursuit of the most nutritious and delicious way of eating for the better part of her adult life. Having seen family members suffer the devastating effects of chronic illness from a young age, Margaret has long had the desire to help others find a better way back to optimal health and well-being. Through years of experience working with the most complex client cases, including reversing her own autoimmune condition, how would you like to do that? Margaret has established a powerful system for restoring health by addressing the root cause of illness. Today, Margaret teaches fellow practitioners the same proven system she uses to get her clients life-changing results through restorative wellness solutions, two-year comprehensive functional nutrition certification program, for qualified health professionals. With hundreds of alumni around the world, Margaret and the Restorative Wellness Solutions team are actively working to change the way health is delivered. Margaret also runs Eat Naked Kitchen, a thriving private practice that supports clients throughout North America and Europe. And she's the author of Eat Naked, Unprocessed, Unpolluted, and Undressed Eating for a Healthier, Sexier You and the Naked Foods Cookbook. Welcome, Margaret, to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to have you. For everybody listening, Margaret did an amazing masterclass for some of my women in my virtual program in our nutrition module because she's a nutritional genius and a, a genius in the kitchen. That was fabulous. And I wanted to share her with all of you. So she agreed to come onto the podcast and talk about something that she's really passionate about. And that is how nutrition and gut health intersect with autoimmune disease. So we're going to dive into that. But first, can you tell everyone, Margaret, as a functional nutritionist, why are you so passionate about autoimmune disease? I had a front row seat, unfortunately, to what really doesn't work, 
when it comes to supporting people with autoimmune disease. My mom had very severe both rheumatoid arthritis and lupus that she was diagnosed with when I was in my teens. And she went the full-on Western medical model. And in some ways, she was a medical miracle. You know, like she, you know, the things that they were able to do to manipulate her immune system were profound. And yet the quality of life that she lived was, it was brutal. I mean, it was one step forward, five steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. I mean, just this slow, excruciating process of degradation. And the side effects from the drugs that were keeping her immune system under control were devastating. I mean, I remember one time she got a hangnail and that hangnail, turned into a three-month hospital stay because it turned into an infection that, you know, her immune system was so suppressed by these drugs, that infection went all the way up her arm. And then they couldn't get it under control with antibiotics. And I mean, it was just this huge thing. And that's just one example, but I think a profound one that, you know, something as simple as a hangnail was so devastating to her. So that was the, the way that she had to live where, you know, things that none of us even think twice about could be devastating and throw her into the hospital for months. And ultimately she ended up losing her life to side effects from the drugs that were at the same time trying to keep her alive. So it was, you know, at the time I wasn't, I started studying nutrition partway through her journey and very much inspired by her journey. And then I, I just knew there had to be a better way and was really determined that, you know, not on my watch. Like I, I, I myself actually was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease when I was pregnant with my second daughter. I was, I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and there is no way that I'm going to let my two girls watch me slowly degrade and slowly die essentially the way I watch my mom. And so there's, it's a very personal mission for me, not only for my own health and my own family, but for my clients and equipping other health practitioners with the tools to reverse that autoimmune process. Because here's the thing, there is so much we can do to turn around the autoimmune process through fairly simple tools. And, you know, we're talking about diet and we'll talk about digestion and this, that might not be the whole story, but it's a huge part of the story. So I have been very, very passionate about this and made this a personal mission for years. Wow. That's an incredible story. And I know some people listening can relate. Maybe they have an autoimmune disease or they've had family members and watched them go through it. The immune suppressant drugs that people are put on for autoimmune disease, because that's essentially what is done, really can wreak havoc when you get something like a hangnail and get an infection. And I love that this became a passion for you to really help people understand. I mean, it's not common in mainstream medicine that you see people heal from or resolve autoimmune diseases or go into complete remission. But in no. my world, in your world, we see it every day. Exactly. And so I love that you're teaching about this. What made you hone in on diet and nutrition and gut health? If we think back, and I just, I want to take a little step back to just, I know that you've uh -huh. talked at length about autoimmune process on your podcast before, but I just want to make sure we're all on the same page at just the fundamentals of what's happening because yes. it really sets the stage for why the diet and why digestion are so important. So if we think about our immune system, it is this incredibly powerful system that has basically two jobs. Its jobs are to protect us from foreign invaders like viruses and parasites parasites and bacterial infections. And the other job is internal housekeeping. And as part of these two jobs, it has an incredibly important mechanism of differentiation. So it's able to differentiate between self and other, and then it's also able to differentiate between friend and foe. And in an autoimmune situation, what has happened is that mechanism of differentiation has gone awry. And there's a lot of different reasons why it does that. But, the, but what's happened is now the immune system is confusing enemy other 
for friendly self that it should be protecting and it's attacking self. And as we know, the definition of the disease is based on either the system, the body system or the tissue that the immune system is attacking. The question is, well, let's say from a medical model, it's okay, the immune system is attacking self. Let's slow down the attack. Let's shut down the immune system and let's reduce the inflammation. And these are things to help get the individual feeling better. And I'm not gonna say there's not a role for those things. There's, there's certainly a time and a place for both of those things. But that's not actually addressing the most important question, which is why is the immune system making such a bad judgment call, basically? And at its core, and this is an oversimplification, but I think it's a really helpful analogy. If you think about any of us, when we get overtired and we're just taxed all day long, we're not getting enough sleep, just not never getting an opportunity to rest and recover we start to make bad decisions, right? <laughs> I don't know about you. I will say I make bad decisions <laughs> and I see that around me, you know? And so the immune system is very similar in that if it's constantly being taxed, it's constantly being engaged, it starts to make bad decisions. And again, there's different mechanisms for this, but fundamentally, this is what's going on. So the question is, what is taxing and engaging that immune system such that it is not allowed to rest and recover such making these poor decisions? And this, the uh, you know, there, there are lots of different answers to that question, but a huge piece of this puzzle is both the diet and the digestive process because the vast majority of our immune system lives in and around the gut, right? Let's say it's approximately 80% of the immune system. You'll hear some people say 75, I've heard as high as 85. Let's just agree on, you know, roughly 80%. The vast majority of the immune system lives in and around the gut. What that means is that if we're eating foods that are triggering inflammation, then that is impacting the immune system directly. If there is any dysfunction in the digestion, that is impacting immune system directly. And here's what I will tell you is that even if you don't have overtly sort of expressive immune or digestive, excuse me, symptoms. So you're not symptomatic from a digestive perspective. That doesn't mean that your digestion is working properly. You know, I do a lot of testing with my clients and I've had clients with very severe forms of autoimmune where they're very symptomatic in lots of other things. But, you know, I remember one client saying to me, oh, I could, I could digest pebbles. Like I could eat rocks. My <laughs> digestion is so robust. And I thought, okay, well, we'll see. And we did some testing and found some pretty significant impact imbalances that when we address those imbalances, they were silent from a symptom perspective, but it was addressing those imbalances that allowed her immune system to recover and the autoimmune to go into remission. So it's a huge and really, really critical piece of the puzzle. Wow. So much good stuff what you said. You know, a tired immune system can't differentiate self from other and makes bad decisions. <laughs> I mean, I think we can all relate to that. Right. Uh, with, you know, just all the, we're inundated with information and tasks to do in our daily life. And who among us doesn't have decision fatigue? And who among us doesn't start becoming overreactive to their environment? and not differentiating, <laughs> well, really, what are the big problems and the small problems? So I, I think that what you're describing with autoimmunity and the gut and immune system, really everybody listening can relate to because it's what we're dealing with in everyday life. And I did want to highlight what you said about the immune system, 80% around the gut. And I, I don't think most people get that. So I always no. like to say, right, most people think that their biggest interface with the external environment is their skin, but it's not, it's really your gut. And that's why yes. your what I call military is centered around your gut because you're taking yeah. environment and putting it inside you. Yes. I mean, <laughs> this is such a profound moment that we don't recognize as such. And we just sort of eat mindlessly and don't think about the actual miracle that is happening. I mean, when we eat, what is happening is the outside world is literally becoming us. We are 
in essence, walking food, right? And people don't realize that. And the interface, you know, yes, exactly. The gut is still the outside of the body. We think of it because it lives on the inside. That, that, it, but that that's the external world. I mean, we're we're basically a very complicated donut, right? And the donut hole being our <laughs> digestive process, you know. And it's this big long tube. Things go in, and then you know, waste matter comes out. But and in the process, of course, there's all sorts of chemical processes to break down the food into its, you know, in, in nutrient components essentially. And then, you know, in our small intestine, we are harvesting those nutrients. They're they're crossing that incredibly thin lining. I mean, the lining of the small intestine is one cell thick. That is so tiny. And it's, you know, it's got this, you know, we talk about them as the the the, the tight junctions. So these cells are lined up. I love your analogy of of the, you know, the soldiers and the and you know, I describe it as as your gut soldiers and gut army all the time. You know, think about the lining of the gut made up of these cells that are standing together sort of side by side really, really tightly and very selectively these cells will sort of open up those tight junctions and allow nutrients to pass through directly into the bloodstream. That is the moment where the outside world is becoming us. And, you know, along those tight junctions, there's all sorts of let's describe them as soldiers, you know, regulating what goes into the body actually gets, it goes directly into the blood and what gets pooped out essentially. So anything interrupting that process is going to have pretty significant impact because if the, the lining of the, I mean, the entire digestive tract, yes, but let's talk about that moment where the outside world becomes us, which largely happens in the small intestines. Then if there's anything compromising that and we have irritation, a little bit of a tear, we have what's called leaky gut where those those tight junctions open up or there's abrasion and inflammation that's getting that's allowing all sorts of things to get directly into the bloodstream that shouldn't be there it could be the, you could have eaten like the most beautifully digested or grown organically grown locally grown <laughs> perfectly prepared piece of broccoli for lunch if that piece of broccoli is not broken down properly and gets into the bloodstream at an improper phase of digestion, your bot, your immune system, which is which is basically patrolling the blood and, and, and patrolling that lining of the intestine to see what's going in, what's coming out, there it doesn't recognize it as broccoli or as the key nutrients that you would get from broccoli. It recognizes it as as garbage or an invader that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. and, and needs to be gotten rid of. So you're increasing a burden on that housekeeping system and on the inflammatory process, which, and it's also, of course, letting in toxins, letting in um, pathogens, letting in all sorts of things that were bound. I mean, this some of this stuff is destined for the toilet bowl mm-hmm. and now it's getting directly into your bloodstream. That is a huge stress on the immune system. Right. All right, let's, I just want to step back for a second and then we're going to dive into more dietary culprits where you're talking about even that great organic, Mm -hmm. you know, locally farmed broccoli can be a problem. Well, first off, I want to say, I want a t-shirt that says, I am a complicated donut. (laughs) (laughs) But then back to being serious, I'm at a yoga retreat and I've been here several times over the past, 30 plus years, but I heard something differently this time I've been here. And that is that they actually call your physical body, your food body. Oh, wow. Um, I've never heard that before. (laughs) Your food body. Your food body. So they don't say physical body in, and you know, there's so many ancient yoga, yoga traditions. I also took a course on history of yoga and it is super complicated so it's no wonder you hear snippets from one snippets from another and everybody's confused but they call it your food body so move your food body onto the mat (laughs) wow i've never heard that before i love it right and so i that really highlighted for me we always hear you are what you eat yeah 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 we've heard that since we were kids But calling it your food body, I challenge everyone listening, start calling your body your food body. You will make different food choices because you, it literally is everything. When you look in the mirror, what you are seeing is broccoli, the gluten-free mac and cheese I had for lunch, the basil tomato pizza, 
uh, not pizza soup that I had, right? So that's what right. you're seeing. But let's dive into dietary culprits because that's really one of the first steps. People are like, should I eat gluten? Should I not eat gluten? Should I eat dairy? Should I eat? So what's up with the food we're eating and autoimmunity? I want to start with gluten because you started it. You opened the door and that's, a really, <laughs> <I started. laughs> that's an important one. And if you do nothing else, if, you, if you're wanting to prevent autoimmune from developing, if you have already received an autoimmune di- diagnosis, if you have not made any dietary changes yet and you are willing to do only one thing, the one thing really needs to be to the removal of gluten from your diet. And here's why. I mean, we could, we could spend hours just talking about gluten and all the different ways that it's triggering inflammation and causing digestive distress and you know engaging that immune system. I'm going to focus on one piece of the puzzle here, which is part of just the body's natural process that happens when you digest and break down the gluten protein, which is that it releases a compound in the gut called zonulin. And we talked about those tight junctions that line that are part of the lining of the small intestine. Well, zonulin is one of the gatekeepers. And zonulin, when you have elevated levels of zonulin, it opens up those tight junctions. Let's say you lived in a big old house on a super busy street in like downtown Manhattan somewhere. And normally you keep your doors and your windows closed. And maybe you even have, you know, a bellman or somebody who is that gatekeeper at that front door, just letting in only the people that you want into your house. Eating gluten, so that, that's the analogy of what it should be happening in your small intestines. These tight junctions are closed and only opening very selectively to let just what we want into our bloodstream. What happens when you eat gluten is that it releases the zonulin, which it basically acts like opening up all the doors and the windows of that house. Right, And now anybody who's just walking down the street has easy access. And so you might still have your bellman and the front door trying madly running around and trying to only allow in the things that should be getting in, but that, that process gets overwhelmed pretty quickly. And so it's the same thing that happens in your gut. Basically those tight junctions just open up and now all manner of stuff can get in there. The undigested broccoli, the the toxins, the things that are destined for the, the toilet bowl, the pathogens, like all of these things that are should not be getting into the bloodstream are getting into the bloodstream. And so gluten is in many ways the gateway food sensitivity. (laughs) You often, you know, one of the ways that food sensitivities are developed is that maldigested pieces of that food are getting into the bloodstream. The immune system recognizes it not as a nutrient, but as an invader and tags it as such. That's one of the key mechanisms for developing food sensitivities. And so If you have a food like gluten that is just opening up (laughs) all those tight junctions and letting all sorts of other foods get in at the same time, that is a recipe for really both overwhelming the immune system and priming it to attack these foods regularly down the road as the enemy. And when you do that, if you think about that, if you're eating foods that are engaging the immune system like this, multiple times a day, every day, well, that's a pretty major stressor on the immune system. And that is not letting that little immune system rest and recover. And that can be one of the biggest pieces in terms of leading to an autoimmune situation. So gluten So beautifully, I just said, so gluten is is gone. (laughs) Gluten is gone. Bye-bye, gluten. But what a beautiful analogy. So gluten is like your friend who runs up and down, like in college, you had that friend on Friday night who went and opened everybody's door and is like, we're having a party in the hall now. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's gluten, your gateway food, your gateway drug, your gateway party maker. All right. So gluten for sure. Bye-bye. Let me ask you this question because I know people are thinking this because you and I work with people like this every day. They're like, okay, I get it. And I'm 90% compliant, Margaret and Kieran. I don't eat gluten 90% of the time, but I have to have that thing, the toast, the this, the that, the other. And they always want to ask me, so I'm going to ask you, is that good enough? Nope. And I'm not hardlined about a lot of things, but I'm hardlined about this. You cannot be mostly gluten-free. 
It just doesn't work that way. You really need to have it out of the system completely. Now, gluten... It sticks around. Antibodies to gluten stick around for a long time. I did Dr. Tom O'Brien's gluten practitioner training program years ago where we sat through hundreds and hundreds of papers learning all the different ways that gluten is challenging to the body. But one of the key pieces is how long it hangs out in the system. So it can take up to six months to completely clear it from one ingestion. So you really, you you can't be mostly gluten-free. And I mean, there's going to be times where you get exposed without your awareness. That's just, it's almost impossible to avoid that. And, you know, you ask anyone who's celiac where there is an autoimmune response in response to the consumption of gluten and they will tell you how insanely hard it is to be 100%, but you really need to strive for that. If you... If you do the, oh, I'm going to have my croissant on Saturdays, but I'm not going to do anything other than that. Or like, oh, once a year, it really, it's actually, here's the thing. It's easier to just say, I don't eat that. As soon as you open the door to a little bit, that is a very, very slippery slope. And so it's actually not only better for your health, it is way easier to implement just a full-on gluten-free lifestyle than it is to make exceptions. Because once you have made an exception, it's like so much easier to make the next exception (laughs) and the next exception. And where's the line? And, you know, well, you did it for this birthday party, so why not that birthday party? And it just, (laughs) it's a slippery slope. I have not seen it work. And I I know that there's different personality types. I know some people can do moderation and other people can, you know, I, I get that. And yet... I have not seen it successfully work for somebody to be mostly gluten-free. And if there is <laughs> autoimmune, it's just a hard no. Like you just have to be off, be off of it. And, and it might be, you know, I've also had clients, I'm sure you've had the same situation where someone goes off of gluten and they might feel a little bit better, but it's not like suddenly rainbows and unicorns are falling from the sky, right? It's like, but this didn't fix everything. You're right. It's not a magic pill. It's often much more involved than that, but it is a necessary minimum. Yeah. You know, it's like I tell people, well, how would it work for you in your marriage if you were mostly, mostly only slept with your partner and <laughs> go right? That is a great analogy. There are just certain things that are a hard line. Right. So I agree with you on the gluten, but I wanted everyone to hear it from someone else, another (laughs) expert besides me, because they're like, Kieran, you're such a killjoy. All right. So gluten's got to go. What else, though? Because people hear soy. Should I eat soy? Should I not? Cow's milk dairy. Should I have that? Should I not? Mm -hmm. What other foods are culprits and what might be some unique foods that people don't even know to eliminate. If you're just doing this as a starting point and you're wanting to pull out the big, sort of the quote unquote usual suspects, gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, and industrial seed oils is a really, really good start. So if you're able to take those pieces out, and honestly, I mean, each one of these wipes out categories of foods, right? Like if you take out industrially processed seed oils, mm-hmm. you're essentially taking out the vast majority of processed foods. Yeah. Same thing with sugar. You pull out sugar. It's it's amazing when you start to read ingredient lists and ingredient and labels, food labels. It's amazing where sugar hides. I do a program called the Real Food Reboot, and it's we pull all forms of sugar out of the diet for 21 days. And people who go through that are constantly amazed at things like salad dressing, right? At their, you know, uh, maybe like at hummus, like there's these places where we don't think there's any reason for any kind of sweetener. And yet, not in all, but in many of them, you're going to find added sweeteners and you're also going to find really poor quality oils. So when I say industrially processed seed oils, I'm talking about corn oil, soy oil, cottonseed oil, sunflower oil, and safflower oil. Those are the, the big heavy hitters. These are highly highly processed, rancid, 
and just devastating for your body. They're also very pro-inflammatory and inflammation uh-huh. is a, is a, one of the immune processes. Like I said, that's something that's mediated and, and sort of managed by your immune system. So anything uh-huh. that is causing inflammation is something that's engaging and fatiguing the immune system. So those industrial seed oils, oh, they are, they're just, and it, it makes me a uh-huh. little crazy because even a lot of quote unquote healthy food alternatives, maybe they're gluten-free, maybe they're even grain-free and, you know, but then you, you read that ingredient list and it's like sunflower oil and you're like, ah, you're so close. (laughs) So let's talk about two of those heavy hitters, which is dairy and soy, because in some cases they're really good to pull out at the beginning, but there are certain forms of them in small quantities that are tolerable for some people, okay? So that sounds like I'm qualifying all over the place and I am. But let's talk about dairy first. And dairy is complicated because there are so many different ways for one to have a reaction to dairy. So some people have straight up food allergies to dairy. So it's a an IgE, that's immunoglobulin E mediated response. It's a formal food allergy. Others will have food sensitivities. Um, some of these are mediated by antibodies, IgG, IgM. Some of them just happen at a cellular level and they're, they're what we call a type four hypersensitivity. No antibody involvement at all, but they're still triggering an inflammation process. Then you can have people who react to, from a digestive perspective. So there's the lactose issues. That's the milk sugar. The lactose is the milk sugar. Maybe they don't make the lactase enzyme as adults, so they're not breaking this milk sugars down properly and they have severe digestive complaints as a result. And then you get into the issue of the fact that the sort of ultra processing of a lot of dairy that becomes highly problematic. So what I would say is at the beginning without formal testing and if you are experiencing an autoimmune flare, you want to pull out just the whole category of dairy. It's just that's the easiest thing to do. Once you are in remission, things are under control. If you have done testing, that's very helpful. So of course, if there's a true food allergy, you want to stay away from it. If you have a history of food sensitivities, in some cases, you can bring that back in in very, very minimal quantities, depending on what kind of healing work that you've done. But you want to go, you want to tread easily there. And it's a really good idea to retest to make sure, because food sensitivities will shift, they can be healed. So if you have retested, and it does not appear that the sensitivity is active anymore, then you can reintroduce. But I would do, I would be very specific about multiple things. Number one, the most well-tolerated forms of dairy will be the higher fat pieces. So so butter from pasture-raised, you know, exclusively pasture-raised cows or ghee which is clarified butter. So that's just the butter oil, again, organic and from pasture-raised cows. That's well tolerated by most people. Next, if it, you know, another consideration is actually the cow. <laughs> so one of the things that we do consume in our house is we get, I, you know, I have heavy cream in my coffee in the morning, and but I get the heavy cream from an A2 cow. There's an A1 and A2 cows, and it's got to do with the the breeds, and and this is where I'm sort of pushing up against my my knowledge of you know dairy cows, but I know that the A2 one is more of a heritage breed. And it has it just, the actual milk that products that come from that animal are much better tolerated by humans than A1 cows. A2 cows are more prevalent in Europe, but you can find them in the States. But if it if your dairy is not labeled A2 from A2 cows, then it's not. If it is, it's typically more expensive, and the you know the company will will brag about that <laughs> on its label. So you can you can know that by the labeling. Fermented dairy, you know, a whole milk organic yogurt, for example, unflavored, would be a much better choice than just like you know milk itself. 
So there's there's different degrees of this. In fact, in my first book, Eat Naked, I did a whole chapter on dairy and kind of went through what's best, what's better, what's and then what do you absolutely want to avoid. So it gets a little bit complicated, but the key rules are that it, you really want to focus on what the cows ate. So pasture raised is really important. Ideally, A2 cows in terms of their breed and the fattier it is, the fewer, you know, if you don't have as much of the milk sugars and the milk proteins, so butter and ghee, and that's going to be less problematic. And then fermentation also helps the digestibility. So something like a yogurt or a kefir. So that's kind of a deep dive into, into dairy. But if you haven't done testing, and certainly if you're flaring, I would just pull it out. Awesome. No, that was great. That was everything that people needed to hear. Can we talk a little bit about testing? Because you've mentioned it, Mm -hmm. and I know I get a lot of questions about it. You probably do too. Should I get tested? What test is best? People are all the time saying, I found this Groupon for this $79 mm-hmm. hair food sensitivity test. Is that good? I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I certainly <laughs> have my own opinion. And there are as many food sensitivity tests as there are types of yogurt in the grocery store, right. <laughs> which is a lot. Every time I go in the grocery, I think the yogurt section takes up an additional two feet. And I'm like, wow, people really love their yogurt. I know. And most of it has more sugar than ice cream, but that's a whole aside. Right. And they're like, (laughs) oh, it's healthy. And I'm like, no, just go get the ice cream, (laughs) y'all. You'll be better with that. So can we talk about testing a little? You bet. I'm a big believer in testing because... What testing allows us to do is really dial in the specifics for the individual. You know, there's there's certain diets that are broadly removing whole categories of foods beyond far beyond what we just talked about here. You know, like the autoimmune paleo or autoimmune protocol diet, that's a very extensive elimination diet. And people have great success with it. So I'm not trying to diss this diet at all. But you know, they're pulling out all grains, all legumes all seeds, all nuts, all nightshades, eggs. I mean, really, it's really hard, this particular diet. You know, you're eating vegetables, you're eating certain proteins, you're eating certain fats, and even your spice drawer gets affected, right? There's a lot of things that you can't do. You're using more like herbs and like garlic and onions as opposed to paprika or, you know, even something like mustard because it comes from a seed is it is excluded. So it gets very complicated and very, very challenging. And in those kinds of scenarios, I find that what happens is often people are avoiding foods that are not harmful in their body. And then at the same time, they're still consuming other foods that are triggering an inflammatory process. And that's really what's one of the key things that this comes down to is what foods are either hard to digest. So they're creating extra pressure on the digestive system. And we now know that so much of the immune system lives in and around the digestive system. So we don't want to add extra pressure to it. And the other way that a food can tax the immune system is by being inflammatory in the pro- in the body. So it's triggering that inflammation process. So I'm a big believer in testing because that is going to allow us to really fine tune for the individual what their diet needs to be, especially in the healing phase. It doesn't mean that you're doing this food sensitivity test and you never eat these foods ever again in your life. That is not, that's a common misconception. I know when I very first did food sensitivity testing long ago, long before I became a nutrition professional, the individual I was working with, I don't know if she didn't tell me or I didn't hear it and it didn't register but I did not understand that this wasn't a forever thing. And I will tell you, when I got those test results, I went home and I shed a lot of tears <laughs> thinking this was the rest of my life. It's not the rest of your life. It's a temporary thing while you do the healing. So I am a big believer in food sensitivity tests. I do not like probably 99% of the tests that are on the market. And I don't think that food sensitivity testing should ever be done in isolation. And here's what I mean by that. Let's start with that piece. If you do a food sensitivity test, no matter how brilliant the test, you could use a great test or, you know, if you're not using a good test, then that's problematic in and of itself. But let's say you're using a really good test that's very comprehensive and it's going to, and very accurate. And you remove the foods that it tells you are inflammatory in your body. 
well, here's what's going to happen. You're going to feel better for a while, for sure, because you've just significantly reduced your inflammatory burden. But over time, you're going to develop new food sensitivities because you're not addressing and healing the mechanism through which your body creates those food sensitivities to begin with. So what ends up happening is you have somebody who feels better, but then they start to slowly have symptoms recur. And the sort of, you know, this, the healing, quote unquote, if it was actually healing or the improvement, let's say, doesn't last. And so then they do another food sensitivity test and they find out a whole new set of foods that they are now sensitive to and they pull those out. And what happens is they get this ever shrinking list of foods that they tolerate, but while their their symptoms just start to progressively come back worse and worse. So I really believe in food sensitivity testing, but I only do it when it is done in conjunction with well-informed gut healing. And what I mean by well-informed gut healing is gut healing that is informed through its own testing. So I'm a big believer in stool testing to understand what's going on in that digestive tract so that we can get in there and heal that, rebalance the microbiome if it needs to, support digestive function if it's not working optimally, get rid of any opportunist in, you know, organisms that are in there or pathogens. You know, Sometimes we can have these low-lying parasites, for example, not enough to be identified on you know, a parasite test that you get from your GI doctor, but present and chronic and you know tiring out it's sort of that it's kind of like chinese water torture right it's a steady drip on the immune system those things that are just taxing it and engaging it just a little bit at a time every single day that's the stuff that can be the biggest culprits when it comes to fatiguing the immune system and leading to on an autoimmune presentation so addressing and healing the gut, but doing it in a way that is well-informed because it is very, very difficult to properly heal the digestive tract based on symptoms alone because symptoms can be driven by any number of the things that I just mentioned in microbiome imbalance. It can be driven by food sensitivities. It can be driven by a leaky gut. It can be driven by digestive dysfunction. It can be driven by imbalance in the microbiome. It can be driven by pathogen presence. So, And it's normally some unique combination of a collection of those things. And so if you can understand what's happening in the gut, you can be healing the gut and we remove the foods that are triggering inflammation while we heal the gut. That is the magic combination yeah. right there. Yeah, and that, so that was great. Thank you for going so in-depth and detailed so people really hear it, hear it. And what I love that you said is a well, so food sensitivity testing should be done in conjunction with a well-informed yes. gut healing regimen. That includes testing, even if you have no symptoms. And I want everyone to hear that if you hear nothing else. Yes. Because... There's nothing sadder than I meet someone who's been listening to my podcast for several years and they're like, well, Kieran, I saw this hair food sensitivity on coupon and I did it and I removed all the foods, but I still have Hashimoto's and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking to myself, she's lost two years. And I know there's some of you listening who are thinking, how can I do this myself? And I'm all for DIY it when you can. But when it comes to healing your core, which is your gut, mm -hmm. you can't. No, you unfortunately. can't. Unfortunately. No. Um, you can start the process. You, yeah, believe that you could just take some supplements off the mm -hmm. internet and do a hair food sensitivity test and you're good to go. But you won't. It's not. It's just not the case. Is it, Margaret? No, I wish it was. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, our lives would be a lot simpler, but it just does not work that way. It doesn't. I wish it did, but it doesn't. And and I, what I see, and I'm sure you see this all the time, is people who've just spent thousands of dollars on DIY tests and supplements off the internet. And here's the thing, both the labs that sell direct to consumer and supplement companies that sell direct to consumer have very sophisticated marketing. So it is really compelling, even yeah. as a practitioner, 
every once, and I know better, like I know better. <laughs> and every once in a while, I will see some ad. I'm like, ooh, I hadn't heard of that probiotic before. You know, and, <laughs> and you start to think, well, maybe this is the missing piece, right? And it's just not that simple. Even the probiotics that I work in, with in clinic that have fantastic success rates, even those Sometimes they work for an individual and sometimes they don't. Like it's so bio-individual. We have to remember that we are unique people. Every one of us comes with this very unique constellation of health history, physiological strengths, constitutional weaknesses, where we live, what we ate as a child, what kind of mm -hmm. stresses are on us, what we eat now, what's our lifestyle, how much sleep do we get, what climate do we live in, what season is it, what grows locally to us. I mean, all of these things come together to create this sort of unique health blueprint that we have. And it is just not possible that there is like a couple of magic pills out there. It's compelling. We want it. We but want it. It just doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Okay. So we're going to have to wrap up. But before we do, I know people are probably maybe feeling a little hopeless. Okay. I can't have gluten. I can't have dairy. I can't have seed oils. I can't have this. Da, 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 da. I got to have a gut test and all this. Where am I going to find the money for that? Okay. Let's give a little hope here. Mm -hmm. What should I eat? I've just been diagnosed with an autoimmune disease and we are going to offer margaret has generously giving you a copy of her first five steps to address autoimmune diseases we're going to put the link in the show notes so you can go download that and so maybe this is you or a friend you can download it and get started so you know you'll have all five first steps five steps because we don't have time to go over all of them but let's leave everyone with Okay, so what should I eat? What would be a good breakfast, Margaret? What would be a good lunch? What would be a good dinner? Focus first on actually really clean, healthy proteins. Those are going to be part of it. That's part of what builds your immune system. It's what supports repair in your body. Um, it also is what keeps you full and satiated and can help blood sugar balance, et cetera. So I want you to think first about the protein. And I am a big believer in animal protein. The challenge with plant-based proteins is that they're so hard on the digestion. So when we're talking about autoimmune and gut health, if you're leaning on soy and legumes, those can be quite devastating to the gut. So really good, clean animal protein. So I'm talking about things like pasture-raised beef, eggs from pasture-raised chicken, pa the, the chicken itself, wild fish um, and seafood, good lamb, bison, wild boar, these kinds of things, they're actually pretty wildly available at this point. You know, even more conventional grocery stores are starting to catch wind of this trend, as call it, I don't know, this movement towards cleaner animal protein. So you can definitely find it and you want to make, you want, this is where you want to invest your food dollars is in proteins and fats, because that's actually where toxins accumulate and hormones and all this kind of stuff. So you really want to invest your food dollars there. You want to eat lots of veggies. We could get into the nuances based on what's going on with your digestion. Some people tolerate more, some people tolerate fewer. If you do find that veggies are challenging on your gut, make sure you're cooking them. You know, they, we have this sort of ideal that you should be eating tons of salad. Salad doesn't work for a lot of people. Raw vegetables can be very, very hard to digest. So just lightly cooking them, maybe you saute them, maybe you steam them and add some yummy sauces. But that would be, you know, so clean, clean proteins, good veggies, healthy fats that are used appropriately. And I I know in that in that handout, the first five, we talk uh, go at length. That's a whole topic in and of itself is how what fats to use when. But you don't want to be afraid of fats. They're vitally important. You just want to make sure they're the right ones. And then healing foods, things like bone broths and fermented foods can be really, really healing to the gut. They probably won't take you the full distance, but it's a really good thing to incorporate into the diet on a regular basis because it's really to helping to initiate that healing process. And then, you know, you know, if you're going to do grains, make sure that they're gluten-free grains, trying to stay away from those processed foods that are going to have the, you know, industrial seed oils that we talked about and whatnot. But let me tell you, I eat this way and, and we have this idea that eating healthfully means, you know, this sort of dry piece of chicken breast and steamed broccoli without any flavor on it. It does not have to be that way 
at all. And in fact, we'll give the links to my practice website, eatnakedkitchen.com. But if you go in there, there's an opt-in at the bottom right-hand corner and we give you our full kind of kitchen stock. We call it the kitchen essentials. It's basically what you should have in your pantry and your fridge. And then the next day we send you a, t- a week-long meal plan with recipes that we use in our household with both my husband and myself and the kids. This is all family-friendly stuff. This is stuff that we eat on a regular basis. Both my husband and myself are two young children. We have a, a six-year-old and a 10-year-old, both of whom are quite picky. You know, I think it's a great tool for you to get started in eating this way. And basically everything that I've just explained in terms of how you want to eat and foods to eliminate, all of that's built in. So you don't even have to think about it. You can just use this meal plan as a starting point, use the grocery lists. And these are meals that are on high rotation in our household and that the kids love and are delicious and nutritious. And it's not chicken breast and steamed broccoli. Yeah. You know, it's funny when I have to go to a regular restaurant, like just with American sad diet, mm-hmm. everything tastes the same. It's yeah. fat and it's sugar, but you don't realize that when you eat it because you're looking for the fat and sugar flavor and that's what tells you it's good, also salt. But when you eat the whole foods way, like you're describing, and I encourage everyone to go download what Margaret's offering because her husband's an amazing chef mm-hmm. and I know he had his hands in all of that. But when you really start to eat from a, a whole foods perspective and you really taste the flavors of the food, it is a re-education of your palate. But I make things like, well, I should share this recipe with everyone. And I di- I'm digressing, I know, but I make this cilantro and parsley and garlic sauce that you can put on chicken or fish. Anyway, it's amazing. So you can learn to cook this way. Margaret is a great resource for because she's an expert in it. And like I said, her husband is a fantastic chef. Thank you, Margaret, for sharing this wonderful information. You are a wealth of knowledge and inspiration. I know that everyone has gotten so much out of this. We will have the link to Margaret's first five download in the show notes. So definitely want to go there. She's got Naked is her book and the Naked Foods Cookbook. You definitely want to check those out. Where else can they find out more about you and interact with you, Margaret? My main website is Eat Naked kitchen.com and there are just there's tons of resources like 450 different articles and recipes and just lots of stuff for you to dig into there and then if I don't know if there's any practitioners in your audience but if you're somebody who is intrigued by this work and wants to learn how to support others on their journey to health through diet and these more advanced nutrition and testing strategies I also am the executive director of a company called Restorative Wellness Solutions. And we train health professionals in how to work very strategically with diet, supplements, and lifestyle to do things like reverse autoimmune. Awesome. Yes, I encourage everybody to check that out. Your work with practitioners is great. And yes, we have lots of practitioners in our audience. So if you are interested in thinking, wow, I might like to work with people helping them in this area of their life, definitely check out Margaret's offerings. There was so much great content. I didn't get to share some of these wonderful quotes that you shared with me before the episode, but I got to get them in because this is one of my favorites from Maya Angelou. Do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. And I know that everybody listening has heard something here today that was new, new to you, inspiring, maybe intriguing. And I want to ask you to lean into that and ask yourself, what can I do better based on this information, inspiration that I've learned today and go do that thing. Thank you, Margaret, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. And thank you all for joining me for another episode of the Hormone Prescription with Dr. Kieran. It's been my absolute pleasure to spend this time with you. And I look forward to seeing you again next week when we will dive into another topic related to your hormone balance. Until then, peace, love, and hormones, y'all. 
Thank you so much for listening. I know that incredible vitality occurs for women over 40 when we learn to speak hormone and balance these vital regulators to create the health and the life that we deserve. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you'd give me a review and subscribe. It really does help this podcast out so much. You can visit thehormoneprescription.com where we have some free gifts for you. And you can sign up to have a hormone evaluation with me on the podcast to gain clarity into your personal situation. Until next time, remember, take small steps each day to balance your hormones and watch the wonderful changes in your health that begin to unfold for you. Talk to you soon.